Now, the convergence of two public health crises, COVID-19 and the opioid epidemic, has led to a devastating rise in fatal overdoses, perspectives on ways to reduce stigma and protect patients and communities from the harms of accidental opioid overdose, a featured series sponsored by Emergent Biosolutions. Here's Jessica Halsey, founder and CEO at Addiction Policy Forum. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Jessica Halsey, the founder and chief executive officer of the Addiction Policy Forum. Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, the type of trends that we're seeing with opioid use before COVID-19 happened, because as I understand it, things have changed a bit. But what were we seeing, uh, you know, pre-2020? So right before the pandemic began, we, we actually had started to see the first um, reduction in overdose fatalities and started to, to finally see some improvement in the numbers, uh, both for substance use disorders and overdose uh, nationally. And then that changed very quickly and quite dramatically as the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So the, the types of data that you were seeing, um, was this a one-year trend or what kind of trend were you seeing that, um, you know, was looking, you said it looked fairly positive uh, before COVID happened? Yeah, for the first time we saw a, um, a reduction in the number of people we were losing every day to um, overdose fatalities. So we moved from 192 people a day down to 185 people a day still far too great a loss of life and so much work to, to do, but we started to see some light at the end of the tunnel um, with improvements in uh, people getting uh, treatment, um, having access to needed services and reductions in things like overdoses and overdose deaths. Uh, and then 2020 happened. And so, you know, as you said, 2020 happened. Um, what what were, were you seeing once uh, 2020 happened? Uh, we talked to the CDC and, and they said a lot of their data, the last data that they had came out in May of 2020. So it really doesn't reflect uh, the type of data that, that you may have or more recent numbers of what COVID-19 did to that population. Yeah, at Addiction Policy Forum, we sort of saw and we're hearing and feeling the negative effects of the pandemic and the shutdown within hours or days um, of some real changes. Uh, so we saw one in three people in a research study that we ran um, reported disruptions in service, meaning that they could not access needed services uh, for their substance use disorder, whether that was treatment or recovery support, harm reduction services, um, naloxone access, syringe service program access. And we also, in, also saw an increase in use. So 20% of our network reported increased use, and that was both on the patient and the caregiver and family side. Um, and the real triggers or, or drivers of that um, was isolation, um, uh, loneliness, uh, boredom, fear. Uh, and then when you take away the needed support structures that we really have relied upon, whether that's our mutual aid support group meetings that we have available, treatment access, um, access to your normal services that you need that are a part of your recovery pathway, um, the, the convergence of those two, meaning increased stress and anxiety and fear with the loss of the services that we rely on, really created a perfect storm for relapses and recurrence of use, for overdoses, for more people in this space of having a substance use disorder than we went into the pandemic with, a lot of things that caused us a lot of concern. So you said previously that you had seen a reduction of 192 to 185 per day. Um, you know, do you have any more recent uh, 
statistics on what you're seeing in 2020, the, the, either from a report from the Addiction Policy Center or from uh, another, you know, uh, organization? Uh, so unfortunately, our latest data, and it's not final for the calendar year for 2020, but our latest data looks like we're, we've increased up to 247 people lost every day to drug overdose deaths. Wow, that's a that's a pretty dramatic spike compared to um, you know what you were seeing before. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about some of the reasons why uh, people may have ended up relapsing or overdosing uh, during COVID nineteen. Um, you know, what kind of risks are opioid users facing during the pandemic? Um, and you know, that may come from uh, institutional uh, risks or risks from, you know, just a regular lifestyle or, um, you know, because of the, the pandemic itself? So I think there are different categories of increased risks for individuals with an opioid use disorder or with a substance use disorder in general. Um, so first, we know from some updated data from the CDC that in essence, addiction is an underlying health condi condition. Um, that creates risk factors for complications if you do contract COVID-19. So I think we need to make sure that our patient population and our community is aware. Like we're very aware that diabetes or having heart disease um, or having asthma might be um, something to watch out for, for yourself or your loved ones um, to make sure we're staying safe, that we're getting vaccinated uh, for, for COVID. Uh, but if you struggle with an opioid use disorder or a stimulant use disorder, um, alcohol use disorder, you're also at risk. This is, uh, as I said, um, really an underlying health condition that requires some more safety measures and for us to take precautions. Um, and, and I think that's something that's important that we get out the word and make sure people understand how to keep their loved ones and their, themselves safe. Some of the other categories of risks are specific to, let's say, social distancing um, or being in the midst of a shutdown. Uh, for example, um, if you are being encouraged to stay home and, and socially distance, uh, but you um, have an opioid use disorder, uh, using opioids alone can be a high risk factor for an overdose to not have someone uh, near you to call for emergency services or 911 if you experience an overdose, not having someone near you who can administer naloxone, the life-saving medicine to bring you back to life. And, and that really is a um, sort of this catch-22 from a public health perspective, because we want to socially distance and keep safe so we don't uh, sort of have spread of an infectious disease of a virus. But at the same time, we want to have public health measures in place and smart harm reduction strategies to keep people safe who have an opioid use disorder. And what also complicated factors quite a bit is we're seeing a huge spike in um, fentanyl in our, in our drug supply, uh, which means the risk for an overdose is, is much, much higher. Uh, so it really was a perfect storm for a lot of risk and a lot of loss of life among this patient community that we care about. Yeah, one of the things, just, just going off that a bit, that the CDC brought up was that they're seeing a, an increase in synth synthetic opioid use versus, uh, you know, the, the more natural uh, uh, forms of it. Um, you know, could you maybe talk a little bit to the dangers of those synthetic opioids and then, you know, also a little bit about some of the trends that you're seeing within that? So the danger is that fentanyl, carfentanyl, other synthetic opioids are much more potent and powerful um, than let's say uh, heroin or prescription opioids um, where you sort of uh, have more control over the dosage and the contents of that, um, of that dose. 
whatever that, that might be. And now with so many adulterants, meaning that a lot of our patients and people who are struggling with opioids, they're not aware that these synthetic opioids are even present in their drug supply, whether that's an opioid or another substance. We're also seeing um, adulterants or fentanyl laced into cocaine, methamphetamines, um, uh, counter, counterfeit uh, uh, sedatives such as benzodiazepines. And that really increased the risk of an overdose or in an overdose fatality to that individual who comes in contact with that synthetic opioid. And, and so it, that runs the risk of a future overdose or an overdose and uh, maybe an overdose that wasn't, um, not to say planned, but um, it's you have an accidental overdose possibility um, much more often because these are much more potent drugs, right? Yeah, you just have no idea what you're taking. And, and the, there's lots of questions as to why is this happening? Well, a lot, again, I'm reiterating, um, this isn't a choice that's being made by individuals for the most part. Um, these are items and chemicals that are being uh, laced into street drugs um, without uh, sort of knowledge or awareness among individuals who are seeking those substances because they have an addiction. Um, and that, that really puts them at very high risk um, and we've heard so many just heartbreaking stories and so many families that we work with who've lost a loved one to uh, an accidental overdose um, from a variety of different types of substance use disorder uh, and, and really this high risk um, and lots of concern for the synthetic opioids that are in, in so many different substances uh, all over the country. And some of the, the, the why, why, why do we find this? It's much cheaper to make synthetic opioids um, and uh, it can be sort of shipped or uh, made here uh, at a, a much uh, decreased cost. Um, and so we, we have some uh, work to do to make sure that we are keeping our folks safe that have a current substance use disorder in general and, and also an opioid use disorder um, and making sure people know how to um, to access treatment and recovery services, as well as naloxone with synthetic opioids. You sometimes need to have several doses of an overdose reversal medication before you can reverse that overdose. So we need to make sure we communicate that to our emergency services as well. I wanted to go back a little bit to COVID-19. Uh, you know, now we're in this big push for vaccinating uh, people, really anyone at this point down to age 12. Um, you know, are there any challenges in getting people who use uh, opioids, uh, getting them the vaccine or, uh, you know, any, any reluctance within the community about vaccines, anything like that? So Addiction Policy Forum, uh, towards the end of last year, we did a um, series of focus groups and a small research project on a sort of readiness to, to receive a vaccine and, and attitudes and um, um, sort of concerns among our population, those with a substance use disorder or in recovery. And we found a fairly high level of hesitancy to vaccinate. Um, about 50% of our network of, um, of individuals, of patients, both in recovery or with an active use disorder or in treatment, reported that they um, did not plan to receive or take a vaccine for COVID-19, which is a little bit higher than some of the the studies that we've seen for other patient groups. Now, the reason why, um, there's lots of questions among our population about um, if there's been you know, tests uh, done or any uh, research on any side effects or underlying um, risk factors if you do have an active substance use disorder. So there's lots of questions and we need to make sure that we 
create the mechanisms to engage with our population and get them the right information so that they can make health decisions. Um, we have launched a vaccine navigator project to do just that, where we have trained peer navigators and social workers who can answer questions among our population. But the other thing, and I think a, a much larger percentage of our population, um, it really is about healthcare hesitancy. We have a lot of stigma when it comes to um, how we view and treat people with substance use disorders. And that stigma can reside not just in the general public, but also in our institutions, such as healthcare providers. And when our patients um, or individuals in recovery have had a negative experience with healthcare providers, um, it can make them reluctant or reticent to engage in preventative healthcare services, regular checkups, or to engage to go get vaccinated. Uh, so I think that we're also looking at a bigger, um, big picture priority of addressing the prejudice, uh, the stereotypes, and the discrimination that exists in so many different spaces on how we look at and treat individuals who are struggling with addiction, because that does hinder things like vaccination um, and making sure that we're engaging in healthcare. You know, you mentioned before that addiction is a disease uh, and that we know that a lot of comorbidities do not do well with coronavirus. Um, does the, the community itself have um, a higher risk of maybe complications with COVID due to addiction or other you know, comorbidities caused by addiction? Yes, our, uh, our population, individuals uh, with a substance use disorder, do have higher risks for complications with COVID-19. Um, this is a range of types of substance use disorder from opioid use disorder to alcohol use disorder to stimulant use disorder to nicotine use disorder. And so it's incredibly important that our whole patient population is aware of this, that they know that we need to take extra measures to stay safe and that vaccination is recommended, is highly recommended um, for individuals with a substance use disorder. So, um, you know, the opioid epidemic has been something that has uh, grown in saliency and, and uh, public knowledge, especially over the past 10 years, I would say. Um, you know, what kind of data are you looking at now? Uh, what kind of data do you have now that maybe you didn't have before? And, and how granular can you get um, learning about, about the, the population? And, and, you know, what does that data do for you uh, now that there's different ways to kind of crunch the numbers and, and maybe... Uh, you know, see where you can help people best? So I think our improvements in data uh, for individuals who have a substance use disorder or opioid use disorder, it helps us, I think, target services better. So we know um, when we have, let's say, treatment deserts, when we have absence of um, critical services, whether that's uh, naloxone, syringe service programs, uh, recovery support programs or specific types of treatments, whether that's uh, medications for opioid use disorder or certain behavioral therapies that are needed. So I think when we look at data um, as a way to improve how we build systems of care and make sure that all of our uh, community, um, every individual who needs services and support can access those services and they can access evidence-based services to improve their outcomes, that is the best usage of uh, the improved data that we are seeing collected nationwide is to really turn that into action. Are we seeing differences in data collection uh, and not only data collection, but also action between uh, federal administrations, between states, uh, between governor, governorial uh, uh, administrations as well, gubernatorial administrations as well? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of innovation. 
um, in our states, in our counties, in our cities, the federal government. Um, you know, the new administration just put out uh, a budget request uh, that in included a, a large increase in behavioral health services, uh, treatment and recovery services for both substance use disorder and uh, mental health. Uh, so I think that we have a lot of, um, of the things that we need in our toolbox. We have uh, folks interested in putting more money on the table. We have better data collection. We have medications to treat opioid use disorder. We have a medication to reverse an overdose. We have recovery support services. We've expanded peer navigation and the use of peers. But it's about taking all of those components and making sure that we are overlaying them um, uh, for a multi-system and really comprehensive approach in every single community. Uh, so while we see a lot of great things on the table, it's about piecing them together and then replicating that and taking it to scale, which is our next challenge. Um, you know, how has the government stepped in uh, after seeing some of these trends? You know, we, we just talked about the data. Um, how are policies changing? We've obviously seen uh, all of the court cases going on. Uh, where some of the, these companies are having to pay fines now for pushing uh, opioids. Um, you know, wh where's the government stepping in and, and where's its role? You know, one example of government action and something we're grateful for is the, the CDC um, taking the time along with NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, to add substance use disorder as an underlying health condition or a condition that puts an individual at higher risk for COVID-19 complications. Um, that's an important step and is, is really sort of reinforcing um, that this is a health condition, a health condition that is preventable, treatable, and we can recover from, but it also can present other risk factors for other illnesses. Uh, so I think the priori prioritizing and paying attention to our patient population um, is something that we're grateful to see the CDC, HHS, NIDA, NIAD, and Dr. Fauci taking an interest in making a priority for, for this space. Um, we're seeing uh, changes in policy and in increased appropriations out of Congress um, that can help us take this, you know, really dire situation where we basically had a epidemic, the opioid epidemic, hit head on with a pandemic um, to create a lot of loss of life, life and people in crisis across this country. Uh, so all of these government agencies and partners coming together to prioritize both in funding policy and innovation is what we need to do right now. And we need to implement it and move fast because people are really struggling. Are you seeing the same kind of response from the private sector? Uh, you know, sometimes you have to fight insurance companies to make sure that they cover certain things. Are you seeing them following suit in ways that can also help uh, people within the addiction community? We're starting to see some changes on the um, payer end, on the insurance end that are important. But I still think we need to keep the pressure on to make sure that policies um, like fail first policies or prior authorization, anything that is going to um, be a barrier or slow down access to needed life-saving treatment for our patients needs to be changed. And we need to, to keep on an eye on our policies to make sure that they, the pair policies are in line with what we know from the science. You mentioned uh, policies, you know, like uh, share first, excuse me, fail first uh, and, and other ones like that. Would you mind explaining a few of the policies for, for those of us that aren't familiar with them and then, um, you know, how they may have been uh, uh, hindered a bit by the, the pandemic. 
Um, I haven't seen a lot of uh, data on if our uh, payer policies have changed during the pandemic, but I do think that's a really interesting question. Um, so policies such as fail first, you'll see that uh, when an, an insurance provider um, or a payer requires um, a program to fail or for um, uh, pro prohibiting or preventing access to, let's say, a specialty treatment program uh, before there's already a failure recorded for that patient. That's really problematic because failure too often means death when you have an opioid use disorder. Uh, so we need to walk away from and really push back um, on these outdated policies um, that might save a company money um, but they are not treating properly or accurately um, a really uh, dangerous health condition like having a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder. Similarly, we see sort of prior authorization required um, of really uh, barriers that can exist with some pairs in, uh, let's say, approving certain medications for opioid use disorder. The FDA has approved three different medications to treat an individual who is struggling with opioid addiction. We have methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Any policy that makes it more difficult for a patient to access one of those three medications in its different formulations really needs to be addressed and changed because we know that medications work and they reduce your chance of death uh, tremendously. What about some of the government programs and uh, things like that? So, um, you know, there's the needle exchange type programs, uh, safe areas where uh, users can go, uh, drug users can go to, um, you know, have someone safe spaces to use the drugs. Um, you know, is are those harder to uh, implement during a pandemic? So, um, it's very unfortunate that we see an increase in some infectious diseases. Um, that are particularly linked in some cases to IV substance use. Uh, so we're seeing spikes in both HIV and hepatitis C in certain communities. Um, as we've, in this, like I said, this perfect storm of the opioid epidemic uh, hitting head on with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing increases in opioid use disorder. Um, and when you take away things like a syringe service program, you are increasing the risk of infectious diseases spreading in that same community. I, I think in, in the midst of this head-on collision between the pandemic and the opioid epidemic, we need to double down on ensuring that needed services, critically needed services like syringe service programs are made available. Um, we're seeing particularly um, in Indiana, West Virginia, and Ohio, we're seeing some very alarming increases in HIV and hepatitis C. Um, and we're also simultaneously seeing some walk back um, among policymakers of smart policy to make sure that syringe service programs are made available. Uh, ha having access to safe um, uh, uh, sort of uh, supply of, of clean needles does not um, encourage substance use. It does not uh, bring more substance use into a community. And there can be some myth um, and misinformation that exists uh, that is um, really starting to um, hurt some of our policies and our program availability. So it's something that's a real concern to us at Addiction Policy Forum that we're going to be prioritizing this year. And I'd assume, uh, you know, this is just based on just seeing numbers of how uh, healthcare workers have been um, working that it much, must be much harder for people who are not you know, suffering from COVID-19 uh, to get certain types of help that they need just because 
the hospitals and healthcare workers are so strapped to dealing with this pandemic as well. So, um, you know, have you have you noticed any just sort of issues around that? Now, with one in three of our individuals in our network reporting disruptions in uh, treatment services, recovery support services, um, access to harm reduction resources, uh, that's a lot of folks that um, don't have access to what they need to manage their chronic health condition. Um, and I do think that we've, we've had a very overwhelmed and overworked um, system of, of healthcare provision with having this uh, uh, pandemic on on our radar screen and in in our communities, uh, but making sure that we build a safety net uh, so folks, let's say, who have a substance use disorder, don't fall through the cracks or don't um, sort of end up having worse outcomes because of some of these disruptions. Is it must remain a really high priority. I wanted to focus on the future a little bit. Uh, you know, we now know that these overdose deaths have increased pretty dramatically over the past year. Uh, how do you and how does the government uh, go forward now in trying to get back to the, the, the gains that you had before? So I think um, looking prospectively, we need to do several things. One, um, naloxone access needs to be increased dramatically in all communities, and we need to make sure that there aren't barriers to accessing overdose reversal medications. Um, it's important that we look at high-risk populations uh, to ensure they have access to naloxone. So everyone coming out of prison or jail, we know that you are 129 times more likely to um, have an overdose coming out of a criminal justice setting than the general public. So having that information at our hands means that we can implement the programs and policy to address that, that risk factor. Um, making sure that we have naloxone available um, through emergency services, through um, emergency rooms, emergency, emergency departments to have available for individuals who have had a non-fatal overdose and to also work to um, engage individuals in treatment after a non-fatal overdose. Thinking of sort of naloxone plus, like what happens after that reversal um, of an overdose so that we can use that as a point of engagement for our patients who we know are at risk for uh, another overdose if they don't receive uh, necessary services. I think we also need to look at our entire system of care. Um, there's been some innovations that we've seen through the pandemic that I think we can carry with us forward, such as increasing our telehealth access, um, taking down some of the barriers to access medications for opioid use disorder or med uh, medications for addiction treatment. And I think we need to also examine our recovery support services and remind ourselves how vital they are. Uh, addiction is not an acute condition. It's not like having the cold or the flu. Um, it is a chronic health condition, much more similar to diabetes or asthma. Um, and a lot of our long-term care for addiction takes place through mutual aid support groups, um, sort of this network of support systems that we have nationwide. When we lost access to those for several months during a pandemic, um, that was catastrophic to too many patients in our space. So I think we need to double down and we need to work on policies to make sure that should we ever end up in this pandemic shutdown situation again, that we see our recovery support services as essential services and make sure that there is no disruption. Are there any uh, future technologies or future policies on the horizon that might uh, be helpful? I remember when naloxone uh, first came out, it was a complete game changer for EMTs and for, you know, addiction centers and things like that. 
Um, you know, is there anything else on the horizon that that is looking exciting for the the uh, the community? You know, I think we're looking at new formulations of medications. Um, I personally would love to see um, more medications for opioid use disorder in different formulations like long-acting injectables that um, make managing this illness a little bit more easier for our patients. Um, we're very interested in seeing medications for um, stimulant use disorder. We're seeing some alarming increases in uh, cocaine and methamphetamine use nationwide. Um, and traditionally, if you look at sort of historically, we usually follow an opioid epidemic with a stimulant use disorder epidemic. So I think we need to um, be prepared and be looking for more innovations for treating that illness, that type of substance use disorder, which is very, um, very serious and has less tools in the toolbox right now. And on the technology side, um, we have digital therapeutics and technologies available to help in the management of this illness that I think are underutilized. Um, we at Addiction Policy Forum used some of those during the pandemic to help in, in our own way, reinforce that safety net for our patients. And I think if we um, sort of think about what's missing and how we can use technology to connect all of these 20 million people who are currently struggling with addiction, um, how can we use existing services and innovate to find new programs and resources that uh, make managing this illness um, more easy and, and improve our outcomes at the same time? Those are some of our wish list items. And obviously, you know, everyone can use more resources, but, um, you know, what sort of resources can the uh, government continue to push and, and uh, ideally uh, increase over years that can really help the issue? You know, I, I think in terms of resources and what we need, I feel like we've learned a lot um, as, a, as a country or maybe even uh, throughout the world on public health responses to serious illnesses, you know, as, as looking at what our governments and doctors and healthcare systems, how they've uh, mobilized to respond to COVID. Um, and a lot of those same lessons apply to addiction because addiction is a health condition and it needs to be treated as such. So just like we've seen over the last year and a half with COVID, we need to prevent the number of people who contract this illness. We need to, to reduce the number of people that are contracting it and prevent as much of the illness from developing as we possibly can. Um, so we need to make sure that prevention of, uh, of developing an addiction is still a very high priority, which means moving upstream. Um, we also need to improve um, treatment and evidence-based treatment to make sure that we're individualizing um, the care of our patients uh, to, to really make it personal to them. And we need to build long-term care solutions, like looking at the chronic health management system for this. We have this sort of backwards way of looking at it addiction as being sort of 28 days and you're magically cured. Um, but that's not how we look at asthma, diabetes, or schizophrenia, and it's not how we should look at substance use disorders. So building those long-term systems um, uh, of recovery support uh, to, to really reinforce and make sure that we're giving people what they need to manage their chronic health condition is incredibly important. You know, the, the last thing I would just mention is, um, I think lessons learned from this pandemic and from, you know, it's been a stressful year for year and a half for all of us, right? And so much of how um, we particularly here in the US handle stress and loneliness and anxiety, um, our coping skills, um, so to speak, are, are really built around alcohol and other substances. Um, and those societal norms um, and some of those patterns that we see in our community 
uh, drive a lot of our issues with alcohol, um, uh, drugs, and developing of a substance use disorder. So I think as we're all hitting spring and summer and life is returning to some type of normalcy, even though it feels like it's a little bit different, but it's a moment for all of us, regardless of who you are and where you sit in the community, to take a look at your own coping skills, to take a look at the coping skills that you're modeling for your children, for your employees, for your friends, for your family, and make sure that we are safer and smarter about al alcohol and substance use, and that we reach out to anyone that we see in our own uh, work or personal network who is struggling, um, either with mental health uh, issues or substance use disorder, that we reach out now uh, to engage them in treatment and support. Because like any other illness, addiction gets worse over time, not better. And we need to speak up and have those awkward conversations and start um, connecting with folks that we're worried about. Jessica, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for, for your insight. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'd once again like to thank our guest, Jessica Halsey. She's the founder and chief executive officer of the Addiction Policy Forum. I'm your moderator, Scott Massioni, and you're listening to WTOP News. For more on this discussion, visit WTOP.com and search addiction. Emergent is a global life sciences company that is dedicated to providing solutions that address public health threats. Learn more at Emergent Biosolutions, ebsi.com.